It's the Auburn Observer Podcast, the Inner Circle Edition. Justin Ferguson right here, Painter Sharpless over there. Hello, Painter. Howdy. So, Painter, we are not alone this week. Uh, it is a time for a very special guest. Our first guest in a while. I think this is the first guest we've had since since Ben, like right before the Georgia game. Uh, have we had one since then, Painter? Brother Ben, yes. We've brought in reinforcements and strong ones. Yes, a strong reinforcement, and also the second University of Maryland alum to be on this <laughs> podcast, joining Josh Vitale. It's Alex Kirshner uh, of the great Split Zone Duo podcast, of Moon Crew, of all internet spots, and of his wonderful Twitter account. Hello, Alex. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. It's exciting to be here and to follow my former college newspaper colleague, Josh Vitale. Did you know you know Josh in college? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, he, yeah, he so, was a few years ahead of me, but we were both on the Diamondback, the student newspaper at the University of Maryland. What do you recall about Josh from, from college? Nice guy. Uh, was <laughs> was helping to run the sports offerings of the newspaper at a time when I was actually like a political reporter. Or I was reporting on maybe the university senate or something like that. Always enjoyed talking with him, and we haven't seen each other in person in a while, but we've been able to keep up. Big fan of, of Josh Vitale and the entire extended Auburn press corps, of course. So does Maryland uh, have some kind of um, Illuminati or any kind of student group that fancied itself to be a power broker, or at least maybe some people that were in like a, a little secret society, if you will, and they actually do go on to have political careers or some, some kind of career in like you know, high financial life. Since y'all are so close to D.C., I would imagine well, that might be uh, a Well, a classmate of mine is currently the mayor of Greenbelt, Maryland, which is adjacent to College Park uh, and uh-huh. the home of a drive through liquor store that every college student uh, <laughs> at Maryland went to. There was another kid who hmm, ran for city council while we were in college and lost, which was tough for him because you don't want to be, you don't want to have a, a, an electoral defeat on your record before you're even out of college, but <laughs> that that did happen. But yeah, there's all kinds of, of power brokers from Maryland. I mean, we've got the guy the guy from the Muppets, Jim Henson. He's a terp. Uh, I think the Reddit guy uh, is or was a terp oh, at wow. least for grad school. So also some terrible U.S. senators uh, went to Maryland. So <laughs> y'all you also know. got Scott Van Pelt though. So it, we do it Scott balances Van Pelt. out. We do yeah. Scott Van Pelt. So Van yeah. Pelt and Vitaly balance it out for y'all. Yeah. So we've got we've got levels. So you said there that you were you started out as like in political reporting. When did you make that switch to be like, hey, I'm going to do sports? And then it got to the point where it was like, I'm going to do sports for a living, even though that might not be the smartest thing in the world to do. Uh, I kind of did it by accident, honestly. I had just always enjoyed sports. You know, I, I grew up in, as I've talked about many times, uh, in, in the city of Pittsburgh. So it's hard to grow up as a little kid in that city and not get pretty into sports. And uh, when I was, you know, younger, I had a little blog about the the Pirates and Penguins and Steelers. I think that the way I got into it was just I started blogging about Maryland for the SB Nation Maryland site when I was a sophomore or a rising sophomore even in college. And uh, sometimes, you know, you guys know how it is. If you get an opportunity to make a few bucks an hour writing about something, you're just like, oh yeah, I'll I'll do that. Uh, And I just enjoyed it. And there was an opening after I graduated to make it more of a job job. And I applied for it and then did that for a while. So really by accident, but sometimes that's okay. That's how Painter and I got in, got into this side, right? Right, Painter? We're just by total accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been riding on your wings for some time. But, yeah, I mean, uh, it 
it definitely was an accident for me. I certainly did not go into school thinking I would be doing any form of if you can call what I do sports journalism. I didn't think that's it where is. I'd I would be. call it that. You, I would call it that. You're a yeah. big you're a big J journalist painter. Never that's right. That. Never right. forget that. So Alex, we, we wanted to bring you on for several reasons, but the main one when we were thinking of all right, we needed to line up some off season guests to have. Um, because we're about to hit the stretch where you got to find stuff to talk about. Uh-huh. Spring spring practices in the rear view mirror for Auburn. Basketball, the roster overhaul there is kind of winding down. So well, we wanted to bring you on because not only we, did we want to talk about Auburn kind of from the national perspective, from from a guy who, who writes and talks about the sport at, at, at a bigger level than what we do, you, for as long as I've, for as long as I've known you online, you've had this like – odd fondness for Auburn for a guy like you said from Pittsburgh went to the University of Maryland you've told me this in the past but I think Auburn fans who are listening might want to hear it. like why are you such a have this have this fondness for Auburn um especially in the position that you're in well uh, I think a few reasons the first is that and I'm not sure how widely known this is but Birmingham, Alabama, which I understand is in your guys' neck of the woods, and Auburn has played, right. has played a lot of football in that city over the years, is sometimes referred to, and I, I am not kidding, as the Pittsburgh of the South. It was, Iron City. It was, you know, it was explained to me sometime in relatively early childhood that Pittsburgh had a sister city. And I was like, well, what the hell is a sister city? Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so, you know, we, we start there. We start with the fact that I, I sort of, I think as a kid— just had a vague understanding of like the state of Alabama because of its very tangential association with my hometown of Pittsburgh. But also I think that I grew up for the most part, for the most part, a pro sports kid. I went to pick games with my grandfather and my dad at Pitt Stadium from when I was little. So it is very much a lifelong thing for me. But I think that my greatest passions were the Pirates and Penguins for, for most of my life. What really started to get me into college football a little more uh, was just like great national moments i mean obviously Pitt's had a few and you know it's fun to beat west virginia in 2007 and all of all of that but yeah. uh, i remember watching cam newton in in 2010 and i think i very much remember the kick six as like you know i, I was a freshman in college at that time and you know uh, this was around the time that i started blogging about college sports but the the pageantry of that moment you know everything from Vern lundquist's call to all of the kids going over the hedges and, and being on the field, like that just looks cool, right? Like, and I, I think that especially for someone who's not really in the SEC footprint growing up, uh, you look at that and you're like, wow, like that is a really cool moment. I think that Auburn sort of plays the natural foil. I, I won't, I, I'm on an Auburn podcast and I, I don't even think that the appropriate term would be little brother because you beat Alabama too often to be considered little brother. <laughs> but, you know, as kind of the... Those the vibes ad- are there, though, man. I mean, those yeah, yeah. vibes are definitely yeah, there. Yeah, we, we don't make any mistake. that it, It's definitely there. As the adversary to the, the main number one guy, so you're mm-hmm. more likable to kind of latch on to than, than I think Alabama is, certainly. You guys just always look like you're having a lot of fun, really. Like, that's that's kind of what I guess it really boils down to is that the Auburn people that I know just always seem like you're having a blast with college sports. And also, Auburn has a great tradition of not really caring too much about the rules. Uh, yeah. And I, I respect that a great deal, too. One of the things that we've talked about in the past, and you've you've used this phrase to me before, and, and I love it, especially for my guy who, who, who talks about the sport and writes about it on a national level. You say, understanding Auburn 
you understand Auburn, you understand college football, you understand college sports. You, you've said that in the past. Go into that a little bit more because, you know, I don't think Auburn is necessarily held up nationally as the example for, like, this is what college football is about, this is what, you know, even college basketball <laughs> to an extent now is about. So what, yeah. what do you mean by that? Because I think, it, I think it makes a ton of sense when you really break it down. Yeah, I think Auburn is a good entry point for a lot of the really interesting things about college sports and a good way to explain a lot of the dynamics around college sports. I'll just start, keep it simple. Look at the Iron Bowl. Look at the tribalism between your school and that school uh, and the (laughs) extremely visceral disdain for that side of the rivalry that is honestly like it it seems to me like what you sometimes see in like English soccer. You know, I think that if you want to explain how big a deal college sports can be to people in, you know, particularly the South, but really in, in the United States in general, the most severe example of that would be like, look at Harvey Updike. Uh, like look, look at like that, that doesn't really happen when the Falcons beat the saints. Um, it's, it's just a different deal. I think that Auburn explains that. I think that if you want to walk that out, uh, the terrible thing that he did rolling the quarter and like, you know, just what is this weird thing that you guys do where you throw the toilet paper over the trees? That is the kind, that is a very college sports college tradition right there. Um, like it's extremely distinct. I think that an alien coming down and looking at that would say like, what are they doing? Like, what, why are <laughs> they, why are they making the trees look like this? And, you know, then you'd go through your whole backstory about how that started and why you do it. Uh, I think that Auburn, from the standpoint of its many, many run-ins with the NCAA, is a good point to explain how things really work in college sports, too. Your basketball coach right now is Bruce Pearl, who has been men's basketball coach is Bruce Pearl. How many times has Bruce Pearl been in trouble for breaking NCAA rules or lying about them? Like he certainly I'm, likes to play with them. He bends them. You never know. Right, I mean, nobody right. wants to say breaks. You know, right? They're guidelines. Aggressive. They're they're guidelines. Um, right, right. But you know, I think that like that is you look at a guy like that who's. He, he is a creature of college sports, even even right <laughs> right down to like, he is an incredibly good coach, incredibly yeah. successful. He's done a lot of it by, well, let's say, not necessarily always playing 100% by the book. And I think it goes deeper. You just paid, you just paid Gus, what, 20, 21 mil, <laughs> half, half of that up front. Uh, again, like if an alien comes down and looks at Auburn, it's like, you just paid a person who coaches these players who don't make anything, $21 million so that you could pay another coach. There are so many things that are just so like turned up to 11 about college sports that Auburn represents that I really do think if you if you are looking for one school to get your head around the whole college sports industrial complex that we have, I think you could do a lot worse than Auburn. Painter, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of the anti-NCAA, the, re- the rebellious nature of, of, of Auburn at times and I don't know. I think it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody else kind of share that perspective that we do about uh, about this whole this whole ordeal. Well, and I think it's become a more popular stance. What in the last ten or so years? Like I at least remember being an Auburn fan and feeling personally like attacked about the Cam news. Now, part of this was because I too much of my ego as uh, about an eighteen year old was tied up in this, but also. It did feel like there were certain writers and certain outlets that were really going after somebody. And I don't think you would see that same level of criticism today. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, I don't I don't know if you guys think that I'm giving people too much credit. But I, I don't think we are going to see anyone attacked quite the way Cam was a decade ago. 
No, I don't think so. I, I agree with you. I think that we've started to see this when someone drops like something that they think is going to be a blockbuster about like, oh, this recruits family got a house. And like 15, 10 years ago, that kind of story is like, oh my goodness, what a what a scandal. Like this is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and now it's just like, uh, okay. Some people are like, good, good for him. Right, like, great. Like, uh, if if Reggie Bush played a decade later, nobody oh would God. bat an eye, right? I don't like, think so. So, yeah. like, when do you think the turn was? Because that's always the thing that I, I've wondered. It, was it a progressive thing, or was there, like, a moment or moments where people were just like, oh, yeah, we don't care about this anymore? That's a good question. I want to say that it was probably sometime after Cam. Because mm-hmm. I remember that, like, even in, like, the 2010 Iron Bowl, which, which went great for Alabama— they were playing what like take the money and run take in, the money and in, run in, yeah in pre-game warm-ups uh and they like threw, they threw fake cash at him right and it's like it's so like scored in the third like they think they think they're getting him with that at that point like i think the overton window was still like you're really hurting this kid with this line of attack with the fact that uh you know his dad may have allegedly uh charged some remuneration for for his son's services who knows Sometime after that, we started to see a shift. The one that I think of, and I guess this was 2014 or maybe 15, was Todd Gurley when people – remember like this autograph dealer tried to narc him out for for having some signed memorabilia get sold? And like I remember that was an example where it really felt like this stuff was starting to land with a big thud, like no one cared. Um, And free free Gurley was a big thing on the early – early college football Twitter. I guess if I could pick one thing that kind of stands out, it might be that. Because it felt even like Johnny Manziel was like slightly, slightly facing that old attitude when he had his little autograph-related suspension. I think it was starting to fade then. So I guess if I were pinpointing it, maybe like somewhere between 2012 and 2014, it feels like we as an industry decided it's stupid. Just like <laughs> there's there's no need to assist the NCAA in its in its duties trying to prevent athletes from getting paid. And it's funny because I think if you look at a decade ago, you look during the cam stuff and see that landscape compared to now where let's just stay in the SEC. You have a coach like Will Wade and LSU just rallying around him, being like, "All right, <laughs> like we're going." Like they have him on rec- on on tape, dead to rights, and they're like, "Yeah, he's still going to be our coach." And it's yep. like minor, minor stuff that doesn't even compare to that would have been blown out of proportion. Just, I mean, five, ten years ago, it's interesting to see which ones have been the rebels in that. Kelvin Sampson at Indiana was in 2007 or 2008, yeah. maybe, uh, like like right around then. His crime was that he made phone calls to a bunch of recruits and then <laughs> and then lied about it and then did it again. I think that might have been the bigger problem. But the industry uh, is the, the same thing that happened to Bruce at Tennessee. Yeah, the, the in, and, lying and about it is the problem. <laughs> right, lying about it, lying about it tends to be the problem. But this was treated, uh, and I think Pearl at Tennessee was as well as like, you know, a fairly major scandal. Kelvin Sampson just coached the team to the Final Four. Bruce Pearl just coached the team to the Final Four what two years ago. So, uh, and and I don't think anybody felt too bad that they were in those positions. So it's been an interesting sea change, to say the least. So, All right, so I do want to take yeah, the time to say or ask the question. You mentioned that it seems like Auburn is having a lot of fun, and I think that is generally true, especially 
as the way I think it might have been you guys that coined this. Is Auburn as the chaos agent? Yeah, Spencer Hall has written about that very well. Yeah. Yeah, and and like I think it is an excellent way of putting it. And like we have commandeered that phrasing on this show. But the thing with Gus is such a fascinating thing. But is it even more fascinating from the outside? Somewhat. I, like, I think that he has just had, again, I go back to like, it, it's like he's a, a perfect entry point to explain a lot about the sport. Like, what a, what a unique but also not unique path. You know, this is like a lot. There's thousands of great high school football coaches in America uh, who are trying weird, you know, unique offense all the time this Mm -hmm. is a guy who gets a shot as an offensive coordinator and then as a head coach he then is doing multiple things at once he's like he is the preeminent other than maybe Dabo Sweeney he's like the preeminent Saban Slayer he is the the main foil to the best coach of all time who happens to be at his arch rival while he is there and he's doing all that he does this quirky stuff I, I think the end of the 2019 game where he conned <laughs> Alabama with the the punter trick with the punt team trick yep. to to get a too many men on the field uh, call to, to get a first down to steal the game and then also he just like can't develop a downfield passing game the way that Auburn fans want despite having you know what last year three great receivers the running game slips despite him being like Mr. Running Game for the early part of his career. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they pay him $20 million because they want to get rid of him, even though, Justin, you've talked about this, he seems like a great guy, seems really nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, he beat Nick Saban, what, three times? Two or three times? Three uh, times. Three times. And recruited well and all of that. But it's Didn't just get him in just, trouble? Didn't get him in trouble. Didn't get him in trouble. Didn't get him in trouble. Didn't care about that. No, they probably do care about that. So it's like a guy who did all of those good things – was still disdained enough that someone paid him $20 million to not have him work there anymore. That's a college football story right there. Turned up to 100 on the dial. Going off of Gus and into the Brian Harson era, uh, we've talked a lot about what our reaction and the reaction around here in the fan base and the beat when Auburn hired Brian Harson because it kind of came out of left field. He wasn't even being talked about as a really big candidate, reported as a candidate, and then – just in one evening, it was like, all right, he's going to be the guy. What was your reaction to that when you saw, hey, Auburn's hiring Brian Harson from from Boise State to, to be their next head coach? This is the replacement for Gus Malzahn. Well, it felt right because it's like it's a big swing, and if you're gonna again, if you're gonna pay twenty million dollars to get rid of a guy, you're not gonna hire a an unexciting, uninspiring next guy. Like you, you need to mm. do something. Uh, that creates a credible feeling that you have upgraded. And obviously the similarities are myriad between the two of them. Um, And it's not just that they both spent a year at Arkansas State, but I think, you know, they're both known for creating pretty entertaining, pretty efficient spread offenses, but not spread in the air raid way, you know, spread offenses in the way that they'll try to spread you out and then run through holes in you. I think the results at Boise speak for themselves. He he didn't build that program, but he sustained it for a very long time. Uh, I think it's the right move for him, not just obviously financially, but kind of got the vibe that things were getting a little stale, not just for him at Boise State, but for Boise yeah. State in general. You know, like I don't think Boise State is long for the Mountain West. I know Brian Harson didn't want them to be in the Mountain West anymore. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And because we, we saw someone reported on emails that, that he had sent about that. 
it was the right time for him to make a move. And insofar as every coaching search is a massive crapshoot and he could for sure fail miserably, it seems like a good hire to me. Slight detour here. You, you mentioned Boise State leaving the Mountain West or potentially. Like, that's their plan. What do you think they do? I know you've talked about it on SCD before, and I think I've seen yeah. people like Matt Brown write about it. What do you think they do? Because, like, geographically, that's where they are. They can't be any more Mountain West. They Obviously, they were, what, almost a decade ago now. They were pretty darn close. And, in fact, for a second, were a Big East team. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it would be surprising if they tried to park football in the American uh, and just play mm-hmm. in that league. The travel burden is not as significant when you're talking about four or five road games in a year. So if you can put your football team in the American, which I think the American would be happy to accept, uh, oh, yeah. because why why not? Why would you not want maybe the best brand in, in Group of Five football? Then you find somewhere else to put the rest of your sports. I'm not sure whether or not the Mountain West would still be amenable to Boise State playing in that league. I, there have been a lot of hurt feelings between the mm-hmm. administrators in that conference in Boise State, uh, owing to the special treatment that Boise gets in the Mountain West television deal. They get almost yeah. twice twice as much money uh, as everybody else in that conference. And I think that at some point, that starts to grate on the other teams, even if Boise gets it for a good reason. So maybe you go and you look and find another conference to put the rest of your sports in. But I think that kind of like when BYU left, kind of like when BYU left and they pick up the West coast. Yeah. Yeah. They're not not having to play Gonzaga every year in basketball, but very much like that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of potential options and, you know, you don't know exactly what like the long-term shape of the WAC will look like. You know, they're obviously kind of in a state of transition right now. Maybe the big sky. Yeah. There's a lot of places where you could put your non-football teams. I suspect that, they're just going to do that because their biggest priority is not having their football team be in the Mountain West for for the long haul. Another quick detour, but back to Auburn and Painter. I wasn't planning on a- asking this question, but let's get into it. It's we're feeling a little feel feeling a little spicy at the beginning of the week. You talk about Auburn being a uniquely like this is how you explain college football. It's a very college football story. Did the Kevin Steele saga fit that <laughs> fit that scenario of a very college football story? Yes. Yes, it did. It's. I mean, it's like people don't. What was understand. that like from the outside? Because we kind of got our perspective of it, but it was it was insane. I know from the outside looking in. Well, I will acknowledge that it looked a little silly from my perspective, but okay. I mean, good work by the athletic director Alan Green to uh, apparently put a stop to that uh, when there were some people who were reportedly trying to basically install Kevin Steele as as the head coach uh but yeah it's a great college football story because i don't think that a lot of people understand that college football power struggles sometimes are like akin to the power struggle that ensues when a ruling monarch dies in some authoritarian state and it's like (laughs) it's the death of stalin (laughs) right it's like yeah right exactly it's like which which brother is going to take over for the crown prince who just died uh or who just got a 21 million dollar buyout you know it's it's the same dynamic of like you've got different factions trying to get their person into that job and being very combative very feisty about it so it's a deeply college football story kevin said earlier this week i think he talked to dennis i don't know if you saw this painter he talked to dennis dodd of uh of cbs and sounds like he's trying to get a netflix deal right he said he said he was like what happened at just at tennessee 
But I guess also you could throw in what happened at Auburn as well. He said he could write a book about it. Uh, Alex, uh, I know you're on the I know you're on the freelance train. Would you Would you like to be Kevin Steele's ghostwriter? Because that book yep. that book is going to make some cash whenever if it ever Honestly, happens. Kevin, if you're listening to this, I'm doing some ghostwriting right now. I'd be I'd be thrilled to ghostwrite for you, Kevin Steele. If you need someone, and if if you can share some of your buyout money with me, then all the better. <laughs> I did a little ghostwriting a little bit a while back. How, how do you feel about it? I'm not don't want to go into too many details, obviously, but. I mean, it's uh, I, I feel, mine was an experience, right? And I think I've told I think I've told you who I, that you was have, for. You have told me yours. I, I treated your experience as a cautionary tale. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, a I've great, been a great I've one. been fine doing a little bit of ghostwriting. It's well well out of the journalism world. It's just for oh, yeah. for a little company because the person who I'm ghostwriting for is just a business person who just has mm. a little has a little construction company. It's just a, a little book about construction. Hunter Biden. Not, not even yeah hunter biden uh it's not even on this <laughs> continent so i'm I'm not particularly worried about it it is hunter biden <laughs> yes it is it is uh it, it is uh i've been i've been found out it's hunter biden uh so i wonder how many tweets we'll get about that one uh all right so we, we've talked about harson and we've talked about kind of this in, in the in the national scale of that higher one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is about expectations and what you what fans should expect out of their college football team. And we have, like, the debate about Auburn is ongoing about how much you should expect. And now with the new head coach, it's it's different. When you look at Auburn and kind of how they are as a program and the landscape of the SEC and the landscape of college football, what do you think is, like, a a spot where it's like, all right, if Auburn hits these kind of benchmarks, that's a pretty good season for them. Well, Bo Nix has improved so much this year. (laughs) Under this new offense. Uh, <laughs> now, I think that a realistic place for Auburn to be is always in the top half of the SEC West uh, and in a position where every few years, and coincidentally, that's probably in the odd-numbered years, uh, mm-hmm. can beat Alabama and make a run. I, like, I don't think that it is particularly realistic while Saban's at Alabama to expect that Auburn is going to win in Tuscaloosa because they haven't unless they've had Cameron Newton at quarterback and nobody really wins in Tuscaloosa. Uh, if you win in Tuscaloosa, then you are probably going to find yourself on a short list of the best college football teams of all time. Uh, it tends to be the, the general rule of what it takes to win in that environment. So I think that if you stay good and, and you maybe make the down years a little bit less down than the four or five losses that they have been uh, for the last however many years under Gus, but you can be, you know, in your down years, try to be more of a nine and three team or, or maybe 10 and two um, and leave yourself in a position where you don't have to leap that far in the years where you think you can get Alabama, then I think that's a pretty good place to be. But uh, it is a tough neighborhood. It's, it's not easy to be opposite that guy at this time and i'm sure nobody knows that better than you so what's yeah. auburn got to do at this point to get to nine ten wins and like can its fan base do that without being so insufferable because you've mentioned on the one hand that it looks like it's a group of people that are having fun but if we're not having fun we're having a very very bad time and i'm curious from an outside perspective are you just kind of putting your hands up going like Oh, well, as long as that guy's, you know, in the state and you've got those two bordering schools, like, I don't know what to tell you, folks. I think that the simplest path there is to get 
an absolute dude at quarterback. And I like I don't mean that you're going to repeat Cam Newton because sure. that's probably not a repeatable trick. But I also you got think there that, with Nick, right? You got there with Nick say, Marshall and Jared he, Stidham. <laughs> he he did he did and he, like and particularly, but I was going to bring up Marshall. So like I'm not sure that Nick Marshall his 2021 equivalent would do it because of how the sports changed. And and this, like, Gus was mm. on the leading edge of the RPO game mm. uh, and very much used that with Nick Marshall to mount a great season and, and come very close to a national championship. But now these recruits that are coming out of the high school ranks every year who are, like, at this point we are well into, like, the private QB coach, seven-on-seven seven era. Like, there are always going to be a few kids, a few players, I should say, throwing balls for FBS teams who just have missile-accurate arms that are going to blow away a really clever RPO offense. Mm-hmm. We saw that kind of what with what uh, Clemson did to Bama in the 2018 National Championship game. You know, right. Two is a great quarterback, but he's just much more limited in terms of the ability to clown defensive backs with a bunch of great receivers than, than Trevor Lawrence was with, with Clemson's guys. You know, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe uh, with the right schemer, you could get another Nick Marshall and and do it that way. But I think it's harder, especially because defenses have started to like at least sort of understand how to defend the RPO. Whereas obviously in 2013, Alabama did not know how to defend. You know, the the tying touchdown to Sammy Coates being the best example, they just didn't know what they were doing. Uh, Deeply illegal play. <laughs> but, yes. There were there were linemen there were linemen like 12 yards downfield, but they're still not they're still not enforcing that. So yeah. I think watch any path. Ole Miss game. Watch any Ole Miss game right now. Absolutely. You'll see like dudes like eight yards downfield. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of a kind of a joke, kind of a farce how little they enforce that. But uh, yeah, I think if you get a quarterback who can, it, it sounds so simple, and you know, I, no one should mistake this for really like eight hundred level analysis. But there are a few of them every year in college football mm-hmm. right now, and if you can get one of them, then you're going to be right there. Uh, particularly if you recruit at an Auburn-like level, uh, as as they have pretty consistently done, uh, staying you know at a point where they're recruiting more than half blue chips up and down the roster. Y'all talked about this on Split Zone the other day, and I know Richard's big on this. The the you just reminded me of it with the downfield thing. Do you think college will ever consider going to the one yard rule like the NFL does with downfield? And like, how much different does the sport become when that happens? Because I think it's pretty dang drastic. Yeah, I think it is drastic. I think at some point it'll probably happen because defensive coaches just won't shut up about it because they're going to be like, <laughs> like if, if if you talk to a defensive, that's how you get things done. It is like you just you just got to not shut up about it. I guess in theory, about half of the power brokers in the coaching world, like the AFCA world and and the football rules committee world, are defensive guys, and half of them are offensive guys. Uh, Roughly, I, I'm sure it doesn't break down exactly like that, but I would think that at some point there will be so much noise made that they consider rolling that back, uh, mm-hmm. if not to one, then to two, or or another thing that you could do about this is just enforce it rigorously. Yes, because <laughs> actually pay attention because the three yard rule isn't really a three yard rule. It's like a it's a it is a nebulous eh, somewhere between three and six yard rule or or worse. <laughs> And a lot of officials just don't call it. They like they just yep. they just allow this to go. And it wouldn't be that hard to crack down on it because anyone watching even on like the limited T V view, you don't you don't need to be looking from the all twenty two to see that 
the yeah. offense that the guard is five yards up the field when the quarterback pulls the ball and throws it. Like that's pretty easy. Anybody could see that. It is somehow more inconsistently like applied and called than holding, which is you know the whole thing. Like holding happens on every play. You just it's just a matter a matter of it being called or not. I mean, there was a game last season where I when I rewatched for film room and like Ole Miss had a dude ten yards up the field by the time like guy center just didn't have anybody directly in front of him and he was just out and going and it's like there's no way that you <laughs> that this that this should be legal and it's not but like nobody was paying attention because you get lost in the shuffle and I think I think guys like Lane Kiffin do a good job of that it's like if you put a lot of motion and and eye candy stuff from side to side and you're like also chunking it deep a lot as well even off those rpos like some of those some of those details are going to get lost in the middle because everybody's darting their eyes around to where the ball is or where the guy's running free at i i would hate to be a defensive player particularly a linebacker it's impossible uh or or coordinator in really modern football but especially modern college football like i don't consider myself a, a huge scheme guy. I tr- mostly try to pick up what I know from reading smart people and from, you know, yeah. having the chance to interview coaches about it and let them impart mm-hmm. some knowledge onto me. But like, I think that with offense, I intuitively could get some things. Um, and like, you can, I can understand how an offense orders itself to try to create certain conflicts for the defense. That makes a lot of sense to me with repetition. I can see it. It makes sense defensively figuring out how to deal with like how to tell what's eye candy how to tell what is real and try to track where the ball is going uh with guys in motion on like over half of the snaps now in college football uh and then dealing with all those conflicts that an offense puts you in with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds being my my troops no sir no fun not (laughs) not not interested defense is fake i don't want to participate in it no fun speaking of coordinators which coach are you most enamored with? And it doesn't have to be because you personally find them to be admirable. You just think, man, every time they speak, something fun is going to happen. Well, I think that my coach crush from a specifically from a football perspective last year, uh, and I try to separate that from the person because I do not know these people well, even if even if we talk to them as media, in very few cases do you really know them. Um, oh, yeah. But just from, just from a scheme perspective, I really think Jamie Chadwell at Coastal is awesome. Like I love watching the way that they create those conflicts. They did some really awful things to BYU in that kind of uh, hastily put together game last year, and you know specifically the way that they kind of blended a shotgun triple option with a vertical passing game, where the person who is picked on in that offense uh or on the defense when they're playing that offense is going to be the safety on the side where the play is going to the play side safety uh because either they have schemed up a numbers advantage where they're two on one running the ball with a pitch or they have set it up so the cornerback is singled up with javon highly they're they're really good receiver number six uh and if you have the quarterback and the receiver to execute that then like you're just putting the defense in a in a lose-lose situation the majority of the time like that's the essence of what smart scheming is to me is just an ability to create numbers advantages no matter what the defense does to you and coastal that is the genius of their offense i remember during the auburn search when all these names are being being floated out there painter some of the ones that we kind of landed on that we thought hey this would make a lot of sense 
one of them was Jamie Chadwell. And because of the way he ran his offense and just the success he had. Alex, were you shocked that he didn't get a bigger job this offseason? Or did you think, okay, maybe it's one of those things where he's going to try to prove he can do it again and then and then step it up? Because they, they, they got him paid after this big season. And, I mean, he probably really enjoys being at Coastal. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's a, it seems like a fun place to be, period. All those guys who were going around, it seemed he seemed a little bit different, though, than what you were getting, you know, from our friend down at Louisiana Lafayette uh, in mm-hmm. terms of holding holding off on a job. In a way, I wasn't surprised because I think a large part of this, a large part of why Chadwell did not get a lot of shine for jobs, particularly in the South, is just like athletic directors or boosters being like, "What? We're going to hire this guy from this little beach school that just started playing FBS football." like a couple of years ago teal like field. From, from right with a teal field. Like what is a Chanticleer? I, I really think that was a lot, was a lot of it. I, I think that this is a, an ego driven ecosystem in, in a lot of respects and an athletic directors did not feel like they could go to their key stakeholders and say, look at this exciting young coach from coastal Carolina and he he's going to come and be our guy because i think that that's just hard for people to wrap their heads around even if the schematics and the program building are exactly what you would want them to be you say that you say that and and i get it but it also kind of falls flat to me even in that in that that argument um if that's the one athletic directors are making when in the exact same state south carolina hired shane beamer Right, well, <laughs> right, but but with Shane Beamer, you get to be like, and again, this is not a meritocracy. Uh, no, but you get to be like, wow, you, hey, you, you, have you ever heard of his daddy? And and you get you get to do that, and and you get to sell it in that way. <laughs> you get to sell it in like another way, which is this guy's been around the SEC. He, Aham, understands how business is done in this conference. You get you get to sell it on those grounds. Uh, I think this is something that Stephen Godfrey at Banner Society has written about, and I, I forget. I think he used Beamer as one example, and maybe he used Chabell as the other. Where it's like there's two there's two kinds of coach candidates. There's your Beamers, who you can sell to your boosters and your and your university presidents and your boards and whatever on almost personality grounds and like on yeah. which country clubs have they sat in grounds. Uh, and then there are your Chadwells or, or whoever that are based on like, okay, this guy really coaches ball at an extremely high level and is interesting in that way. My thing with Beamer is I I would be I would be shocked if it works. I mean I've I'm Oh yeah. You you're one of the you're one of those people though who have really you've said it a lot, I know Jason Kirk said it a lot, and it's kind of been where I'm at now, and when we head into NFL draft stuff this week, I'm seeing more and more of it. We have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to projections. No. We are often really dead wrong, but man, there's just not a whole lot to like point to and be like, that's why the Beamer hire is going to work. There's not a whole lot to point to, because I think that that is a hire that was made pretty clearly with the idea that he knows how to recruit in that conference. And again, he knows how business is done, he was around during some of the the good Spurrier years, but like, you're not going to recruit out of South Carolina the way you did in the early 2010s. It's like it's not going to happen because Clemson is now what it is, and there's just more of a spotlight on North Carolina, South Carolina recruiting than there was back then. 
it's just hard. Like you're you're not gonna fall into like a bunch of Marcus Lattimore's and Jadavion yeah. Clowney's, and I, I forget if Alshon Jeffrey was from South Carolina or somewhere else. But it's just like not gonna happen. You're you're not gonna suddenly become one of the best recruiting teams in the SEC. You're not gonna even close the talent gap with, uh, you know the. I think it is unlikely that they could even recruit at the level that like Auburn recruits at or that Florida recruits at where you're not quite one of the elites, but where you're at a pretty high level. It's just hard. I just, I just don't really see it happening. But your point is a good one that we don't know anything, you know, nope. like Tom Herman failed. That was an on paper, perfect hire. Jim Harbaugh failing. That was yep. an on paper, perfect hire. Herm Edwards, Mac Brown doing very well those were the two most clowned hires of the last few years i think the two most and look at them arizona hired jed fish i think it's completely uninspiring i don't see any reason why it should work so now that i said that i'm sure he's he's going to somehow win the pac-12 south within three years because of course he will so you mentioned college football is not a meritocracy fair nor has it ever particularly been a sport of parody does our beloved game have a looming problem on its hand, given one that I think you could make an argument it's becoming more regional? And also look at a few teams at the top that are doing what they're supposed to do, which is hoarding all of the talent. I don't know exactly how soon it's looming. I don't think that the lack of competitive balance in and of itself is really the problem because, like you said, it's it's been that way forever. And I think that most college football fans have found ways to enjoy the sport with the knowledge that they are never, ever, ever going to win it all uh, or probably even win their conference. Like I, you know, I'm a Pitt fan and a Maryland fan, one by by birth, one by, by alma mater. And I don't expect that I'm ever going to see either of those two teams win a conference title, but I'll still watch the games because it's something, you know, even yeah. aside from my professional obligations, like I enjoy it. It is something that I like to do on a Saturday with friends or family. I think a, something that concerns me a little more for the future of the sport is that I'm just not sure little kids and like younger kids in general care about college football in a lot yeah. of the country. You guys, I suspect that more of them do where you guys are than where I am in Washington, D.C., but I don't see like a ton of enthusiasm for even the NFL, um, but especially college football among like young, young kids. Yeah. So like where does that lead you? That that won't show up all at once if, you know, whatever effect that has. That will take a long time and would set in slowly. But, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, a lot of kids would rather be playing Fortnite uh, or scrolling <laughs> TikTok than watching a college football game. I w in fact, many, many more kids, like kids who are yeah. 10 today, would rather do that than watch college football. And, uh, you know, I, I think that for now, we got plenty of alums and fans of this sport to keep things more than afloat for a very long time. But at some point, I think that has to matter, just in my amateur analysis of how markets work. One of, one of the things, you, you mentioned it there at the end, there's enough alums and fans right now. Y'all have talked about on Split Zone before about what the, what the next generation of boosters are going to look like, what the mm -hmm. next generation of the money is going to be. Because, you know, Auburn is always always super linked to booster culture. But the mm -hmm. guys, the power players around here, I mean, they're not getting any younger. You know, so to speak. So, sure. what what do you think is the future? Like, going that a little bit more. What is the future of, of boosters? Because I mean, uh, Painter, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I don't see the next big time player 
in Auburn athletics from the millennial generation, uh, being a guy who made a ton of money, you know, selling pressure treated uh, lumber. But I could be wrong. I, I, I could I could be very <laughs> wrong there. I wonder about it too. I think that the simplest place where you would find big money that would want to support pet causes like college football teams is in all of this massive wealth that is created like every other week on the stock market with some <laughs> financial tech company uh, that launches. But the thing is that in, in the parts of the country where those people tend to live, college football just isn't that big a deal right now. Uh, it's never been as big a deal as it is where you are in the South. But like, let's pretend that some some Valley person, Silicon Valley person, makes a ton of money making an app that, I don't know, tells your washing machine what to do or something. Uh, and suddenly suddenly their company is worth $20 billion and they have, they're a billionaire. Okay, that's a lot of money. Like that's, that's the quickest way to create wealth now in the same way that commodities used to be the quickest way for people to just uh, become these kind of barons who would, would be boosters. But those people, like the your Southwest wildcatters, they mm-hmm. cared about, you know, Jerry Jones cared about Arkansas football because he grew up in it. He, he played there and, and like that was his thing. Every Aggie booster, you know, grew up loving the Aggies and, and caring about college football. And I'm not sure that the kind of people who are generating those massive quick windfalls today right. care about college football as much. Uh, in fact, they might think that football is bad, uh, understandably so, you know, given a lot of the things that are connected to the sport. And maybe that's not where they would choose to direct a lot of their money. So, like, I'm super curious about, like, it would be funny if Stanford became the biggest college football juggernaut in the world because oh, yeah. some, like, incubator tech company and a bunch, <laughs> of their, a bunch of their founders just donated a bunch of money. But I just don't know if that will happen. It, it is something I'm watching closely. This is a message to everyone listening to this podcast that is into that kind of stuff. If you make it big on crypto, uh, first, bankroll the observer so we don't have to worry about uh, anything anymore. And then pump, <laughs> you'll pump all your money into you know, Auburn Athletics if you're, if, you're, if you're into that kind of thing. Alex, you have never been to Auburn before. No, it's but you've true. Talked, never been. You, but you've talked about wanting to get down here, right? Yes. Yes, I do. I definitely want to go. Uh, you went to Baton Rouge for an LSU Florida game with Richard. That was a lot of fun. We had a good time, and you and y'all survived. Uh, yeah. which we, you know, we're all we're all we're all very happy about that. Where does Auburn rank on a list? Like I know, especially after COVID, there are places you want to get to, and there's the, you know, especially like during college football season, maybe spots you want to hit. Um, where does kind of Auburn rank on that list for you? And like, maybe even not just like one, two or three, but just, is, is it pretty high up on a place you want to, you, you want to be at someday and, you know, take in a game or, you know, get the, get the experience. Yeah. I think number one, honestly, um, I think I would like to go to an iron bowl in Auburn. Uh, I would rather go there than to Tuscaloosa. I, I don't really know if, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of nice people at Alabama who I would enjoy being with, but again, oh, yeah. the, yeah. like, Auburn, you always seem like you're having more fun, and I've made a lot of Auburn friends on the internet. Uh, you guys included at the at the top of that list. Uh, I don't know mm. if Josh Black's listening, but I've told him got to hang out when I get down there. <laughs> oh yeah, he's so, listening. Yeah, it just seems it seems like an atmosphere that is hard to replicate, uh, and that I don't. I actually have a theory that I think most most sporting events do not really differentiate themselves from one another nearly as much as the fans of those teams or those the people putting on the events right, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. to think. 
I really don't think there's that big a difference. Like, you know, a, a, a stadium is a stadium. The game is the same between the lines. At a lot of places, even what you're eating is going to be more or less the same. <laughs> LSU is a place where the where the dining is definitely on an elevated level oh, uh, yeah. and different. Uh, Nothing comes close. But atmospherically, know. Auburn seems like it. Like it, it certainly looks on TV. You guys do a great job faking it if it's not true. Uh, <laughs> that that Auburn's atmosphere at Jordan Hare on a big football game day is really special, uh, and it just looks fun. So I would love to be a part of it. We'll see if maybe. Maybe that could be in the cards uh, later in 2021, or maybe we'd have to wait till 23. I don't know. We'll get a look at it. Painter, uh, I'm going to pose this question to you. If Alex comes down to Auburn, and we've got we got to show him around. What do we, what do we get? What do we we got to hype it up for him. What, what, what are we doing? How are we how are we setting him up for this 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 initial Auburn voyage? I think we're going to the Hound for a quick brunch, and then oh, yeah. we're going to uh, obviously spend a lot of time tailgating, which it does have. I think a a bit of an underrated tailgating scene. Like when you think of a lot of schools in the SEC, I think you think about Ole Miss and I think probably Alabama and Knoxville's got the water, etc. LSU, as you mentioned, is a legitimately incredible. Baton Rouge is incredible. But I think Auburn uh, is fun, especially if you're a visitor, because for the most part, people are going to be nice to you. I would say we, we would obviously need to hit up a couple of restaurants like the Hound. I think we could hit up, uh, acre for a nice meal but mainly i think i'd want them to get the experience of just walking around campus like getting the feel of what it's like to not necessarily have a tie to auburn but but feel pretty welcomed what what am i missing like i there are a handful of restaurants i'd want them to try but i think he made a good point like it's good food but it's not necessarily something you can't get in another town i think the one thing auburn probably offers that some other fan bases might not do as good of a job of is making you feel like you're a part of the fan base. And I always give Auburn a hard time because in athletics, especially in Ferg, you've heard me do this time and again, but it's like the family thing is a little annoying at times, but there is a different vibe at Auburn, especially around athletics, than you get at most of its rival schools. Like I'm not hard-headed enough to just completely disregard that, even if the family thing sometimes feels a bit hokey. Yeah, and I think the one thing Auburn's got an edge, edge at and there are a lot of schools, especially in the SEC, that are like this I mean, across the country. But the ability to have like the campus and then the downtown area, the stadium, all kind of within you know a few blocks from each other. That I mean, you can't beat that. There are some places mm-hmm. where you you have the off-campus stadium, or it's just not quite quite the same. Where you got to go. A and M's campus is so gigantic that it's like hard to kind of get around on, on Saturdays for the most part. But you know, getting to see tumors and that in the downtown area you know that you know how that all kind of blends together on game day we got to get alex down here at some point and we'll as long as he well, I, I think he i think he's set i think he's set because number one he's got the home field auburn gear as we were talking about earlier before we started recording he, you're wearing you're wearing the 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 hoop shirt the hoop sweatshirt right now yeah listeners can see that podcasting is a visual medium podcasting is a visual medium by the way Connor and and the gang over at Home Field. They just did the Auburn refresh this week, released it on Monday morning. We got a couple of shirts uh, sent to the Observer for it, so Painter be on the lookout for those. Ooh. Um, awesome, awesome job with the refresh. A lot of really good designs there, and yeah, our code that like we put up like eight months ago still works if you haven't used it yet. Observer, twenty uh, percent off your first order. Homefieldapparel.com. Check that out for sure. But yeah, I think if you wear the Home Field stuff and you talk about how great Bruce Pearl is. You'll be fine. 
Just don't mention the fact that you want Maryland to hire Bruce Pearl at some point. I do. I do. I do. The Mark Turgeon era at Maryland has gotten has gotten very stale. Uh, and honestly, I think it's because, in part, I do not. I do not think Mark is aggressive enough about, let's say, what, what do we call those NCAA rules? Guidelines. He treats Guidelines. them. Too, yeah. He treats them too much like rules sometimes. Uh, I would like. I would like to see them more looked at as guidelines uh and i think that bruce bruce would would see them as guidelines so i would enjoy that also i would love to have shabbat dinner with bruce pearl you know seems like he'd be seems like he'd be a really fun guy so yeah he's charismatic yeah he's easy to like especially if he's coaching your team i guess the one thing that's very touristy that auburn certainly can offer even as a smaller town is the lemonade we probably have to take him to get a lemonade oh Oh, you got good lemonade i didn't know that yeah tumors yeah tumor like so tumors corner yeah is like the corner diagonal from the corner there's tumors drugs which is a drugstore that's been around since the dawn of time and they're famous for uh they're famous for their uh for their lemonade um that's actually that's new knowledge to me i would love i would love to have that when i get down there yeah it's 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 good stuff and um i'm not just i'm not just saying that because i have a relative that works there but it helps it helps it helps helps. yeah it, it definitely helps all right last question for you alex before you get before we let you go and we appreciate you jumping on with us i know you got Oh, anytime, got, fellas. We've got we've got office hours coming up for Split Zone. I know we're recording this on Monday. It'll be out later in the week. So I know you're you're a very busy man. You've got a very special guest, I'm sure, coming in coming in no with doubt. office hours. Yeah, no for doubt. sure. Yeah. Um, it's NFL Draft Week, and I have one specific question slash request to ask of you. You are a Pittsburgh guy, so I I think you're a Steelers fan, right? I am. Yeah. Okay. We talked about this on our weekend show when we were discussing Auburn's draft prospects. Auburn has Seth Williams, Anthony Schwartz, and Eli Stowe is probably going to be more of that that UDFA range. But considering the Pittsburgh Steelers' success with mm-hmm. late later round wide receivers, is it possible, or do you think you could make it happen with your with your your collective fan energy to get either one of Seth Williams or Anthony Schwartz to the Steelers? Because I think if he land if one of those guys land in Pittsburgh. Yep. They're set. They're they're yeah. set up for some pretty good success. Uh, I actually was texting about this with a buddy of mine from home the other day. Uh, I think either of them would make a lot of sense because this is what the Steelers do. They pick wide receivers in the third and fourth round, uh, sometimes the second round. Uh, I think in the Ch- in the Chase Claypool case, but yeah, I think they they would both fit like the kind of player that the Steelers look for. I mean, the Steelers have loved to draft burners like Schwartz uh, in that spot. They did it with Mike Wallace a long time ago. They had a lot of success there. Uh, Emmanuel Sanders is, you know, I guess part burner, part slot guy. They've they've just done this very well. Obviously, Antonio Brown being the the best example of them having success drafting receivers. I think that they're gonna do something at that position because they're gonna lose Juju Smith-Schuster in a year probably. And one of the Auburn fellows would be would be great. I'd be excited to welcome them to the uh, Pittsburgh of the North. <laughs> so I I. I, the only thing I hope for Pittsburgh's sake is that, and 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 you know personally love the guy who's a great dude to cover, who's an awesome college receiver, especially in Gus's system. I hope the Sammy Coates experience doesn't ward the Steelers off of oh, yeah. drafting drafting a, a yeah that was a draft. rare miss that was a rare yeah. miss they don't they don't miss on those receivers often but it's a shame because I thought Sammy Coates was a great talent the ball just would hit his hands and then it would fall to the ground which he couldn't have in the NFL. It's 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 harder to pull that off in the NFL. It's it was a lot easier to get away with that when you're at Auburn and they're only throwing the ball 15 times a game, and you know you just got to hit on one or two of those deep balls from from Nick uh, to 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 make it work. Look, 
as rough as it was for Sammy Coates in Pittsburgh, he will he will not never be regarded as the classic uh, receiver bust for them. That is Limus Swede. Oh from, man, I forgot from, about him from the Texas days. Like I think yep. from the Vince Young Texas days, and mm-hmm. that guy had some significant catching problems. Uh, so in Pittsburgh, I don't. Th- I think everyone wishes Sammy Coates well. I don't think that he is, uh, you know, remembered as as the same kind of bust that Lima Sweet was. So he has that going for him. Huh. Well, that, that does help, uh, Alex. We appreciate you again for for hopping on with us. Tell everybody what y'all have going on, what you've got going on. You're writing a bunch of different spots now, your uh, yeah. Twitter account, your split zones blowing up. The Patreon's popping off. Y'all have got a lot of stuff going on there. So, so tell the folks at home about what y'all got going on. Well, you guys made the subscription model look so appealing that we decided we would give it a shot. Uh, Alex is a subscriber, by the way. I am he a is subscriber. a member of the inner circle. That's I'm a why subscriber. We good about bringing, will, it, bringing will, it in on the premium one. I will get this podcast emailed to me shortly and I'm excited about it. Uh, <laughs> So you can uh, find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Kirshner, uh, K-I-R-S-H-N-E-R. Uh, you can check out our podcast, which is called Split Zone Duo. I host it with Richard Johnson, uh, and we frequently have guests on the program as well. Uh, and if you like that and you want to check out our Patreon for that podcast, it's at SplitZoneDuo.com. Painter, you want any, any final messages to the, to the inner circle uh, before, we, before we hang it up here? Appreciate it, Alex. Well, thank you guys for having me. Always a pleasure to be with you. I'm I'm glad to be with you in your own spot here, where you get to control all the money you make, as opposed to having to share <laughs> it with a large conglomerate radio company. Because that's no you know, fun. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we we feel like the indie thing might be might be working. I, I I again, when you see guys like Matt Brown be as successful as he is, and he was the huge reason why I even got started into this anyway. You guys on Patreon have been. I was looking at the Patreon page today. Uh, y'all have got y'all have got y'all are doing some numbers there. So I'm really it's really been happy. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's been like we're all kind of just trying our best, right? Like we we we've all been through the same industry, and it's like, all right, so that's not how it's going to be. And if we're going to keep doing this, it's, it's got to be on the audience uh, to help to to a pretty significant extent. And we've been really lucky that people have been uh, willing to support the work. Uh, and that they've wanted to try like the bonus episodes and things like that. So, yeah, thanks to them. Go subscribe to Split Zone. Listen to what they've got. Go to the Patreon. Follow Alex on Twitter. Buy buy the new stuff at Homefield also as well. Uh, so you can look you can look as uh, professional as Alex does when he when he's <laughs> on 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 podcast. All right, that'll do it for this week. Appreciate you guys listening. We will be back on the weekend episode to talk uh, NFL draft stuff and the latest basketball news. As we head on in to the depths of the offseason. Painter, what do you want to leave him with? Chaos Auburn, baby. There we go. War there damn. We go. <laughs>